Panda, written and read by Oliver Gray, Chapter 3. It was Saturday afternoon, and Ben was listening to a play on Radio 4 on the car radio as he pulled onto the M3 and headed towards Heathrow to meet Corey Zander off the plane from Houston, Texas. He wondered what exactly awaited him, certain in the knowledge that, whatever it was, it would be a person with whom he could surely have little in common. Ben's upbringing had been dramatically different to that of the man he was about to meet. Ben was an only child, brought up in the pleasant village of Chew Magna near Bristol in southwest England. His father, Brian, was an accountant, earning sufficiently well for it to be unnecessary for his mother, Joanna, to have a day job, although she did plenty of charity work. They could possibly have afforded to send Ben to a private school, but the local comprehensive was absolutely fine the quality of education in the UK being entirely dependent on an accident of where you were born. Ben was quite unremarkable in every way. He wasn't excessively sporty or intelligent or naughty. Just a run-of-the-mill kid from a stable family who was always destined for a middle-of-the-road job in local government or teaching. It was unlikely that his life would hold much excitement as he progressed through GCSEs and A-levels, and ended up studying English at Birmingham University, where he attained a 2-1. Following a postgraduate teacher training course in Southampton, Ben was 24 by the time he took up his first teaching job in a primary school in Winchester, and he'd been there for three years by the time he took his plunge into gig promotion. How had he ended up in Winchester? On his PGCE course in Southampton, he'd met Rosie, in her last year of an estate management course at the nearby Solent University. By the end of the year, the two were an item, and Rosie had fixed up a job for Ben at St John's Primary School in Winchester, where her father, Robert Layton, was the head teacher. Of course, there had been a procedure involving advertising the post and interviewing various other hapless candidates who had travelled long distances in the hope of securing the job, but effectively Rosie had in fact fixed it, because Robert knew that Ben was his daughter's boyfriend and that her greatest wish was for him to settle down with her in her hometown. Rosie, in turn, quickly got a post with Poole's Estate Agency, one of the many property companies lining the ancient city's Southgate Street. All seemed set for an uncomplicated, conventional and comfortable life for the couple as they announced their engagement 18 months after graduating. In a suburb called Week, they bought an ex-council-owned one-bedroom maisonette, a posh word for a flat. Even with both of them on reasonable salaries, this was all they could afford in this most expensive corner of the UK. And even then they were mortgaged to the maximum with no money to spare, Rosie would have pointed out if she'd known, for risky forays into concert promotion, and what they really should have been doing was saving for the wedding. Ben wasn't quite so sure. While he'd had a couple of flings at university in Birmingham, Rosie was his first proper girlfriend, and when he had time to think about it, primary teaching being a very demanding job, he did fear that he was drifting into something he wasn't quite ready for. It wasn't really as if they had a huge amount in common. Rosie tended to hang out with people interested in the property business, whose main topic of conversation was the price of houses, as detailed in the Daily Mail. She certainly didn't share Ben's rapidly developing obsession with Americana music, and his love of bands such as Midlake, The Low Anthem and Granddaddy. The previous autumn, Ben had gone, on his own, to the end-of-the-road festival near Salisbury and seen all three of these bands, 
as well as some solo American performers like Charlie Parr and Malcolm Holcomb, both of whom were quite similar in style to what he expected from Corey Zander. Rosie had shown no interest in coming to the festival, but neither of them thought there was anything wrong or unusual in having differing hobbies. It only took an hour for Ben to reach Heathrow. Monday's gig at the station was to be the first show of Corey Zander's European tour, which was, as Ben had vainly hoped the newspapers would trumpet, Corey Zander's first ever UK performance. This meant that Corey would need accommodation for three nights. Hotel prices in Winchester are astronomical, and not even the local travel lodges had any special offers on. With their flat being too small, Rosie absolutely drew the line at allowing Corey to sleep on her sofa. An unlikely solution had been attained, whereby Corey would stay with Robert, the headmaster stroke potential father-in-law, and his wife Diana, in one of the spare bedrooms of their large home in the affluent Chilbolton Avenue area of Winchester. It was a generous offer, and one which Ben had no reason to worry about. After all, his research had shown that Corey Zander had long since left his hell-raising days behind him, living a quiet life in downtown Austin with his now 29-year-old daughter Lucy. Ben parked optimistically in the short-stay car park at Terminal 4 and joined the phalanxes of card-brandishing taxi drivers waiting at arrivals. He'd printed out an A4 sheet saying C. Zander and used the school laminator to make it look more official. And there he stood, for over an hour and a half after the monitors had declared that flight AA493 from Houston had landed. This wasn't something that Ben had anticipated. What if Corey had missed the flight or simply got cold feet? He hadn't even got any contact details. His stomach, already swishing from three Costa Cappuccinos, began to develop butterflies. Corey, when he arrived, looked angry. Very, very angry. Even having watched a couple of YouTube live videos filmed in Anton's Club in Austin, Ben was unprepared for the vision which assailed him. Among the suited businessmen and bronzed holidaymakers streaming into the arrivals area, Corey stood out a mile. For a start, bearing in mind that he'd once been a skinny Jean Ramones clone, he was fat, a large belly extending over a silver cowhorn buckled belt which held up a battered pair of droopy arsed Levi's. His jacket was a grey-coloured lumberjack affair. Thank Christ he isn't wearing a Davy Crockett hat, thought Ben, although the reality was nearly as bad. As well as a heavy-looking rucksack, Corey was carrying a battered sticker-covered guitar case, and his headgear was an ancient leather Stetson, making him look like something like an extra from Once Upon a Time in the West. And then there was that beard. Ben had vaguely expected, indeed feared, a bear hug in the traditional American style, but Corey was in no mood for embraces. Motherfuckers, was his first word by way of greeting. Have you had problems? It was my fucking beard, I know it was. It was indeed an impressive beard, reaching chest level and culminating in three miniature pigtails. Ben could surmise what had happened. The previous year, returning from holiday, he'd spotted the Texan songwriter Josh T. Pearson being stopped at border control in Gatwick, merely on account of his luxuriant chin furniture. The border officers clearly didn't realise that any travellers planning on drug smuggling or similar activities would try to make themselves as unobtrusive as possible. Instead, 
Their policy was to pull over anyone who looked a bit weird. And Corey, of course, fitted the bill admirably. They kept me waiting for over an hour just because of my beard, and then they impounded all my merch. Merch? My CDs. I brought a hundred CDs with me and they stole the lot. The agent had told Ben that CD sales were the main source of income for anyone from the US on tour in Europe, so this was bad news for Corey. Where were they? In my suitcase. They said I can pick them up when I leave the country or pay £250 duty to bring them in. But didn't you tell them you needed to sell them? I don't have a work permit. I said they were promotional items to give away to friends, but they didn't believe me. This was a real shame, thought Ben. He'd been sent an advanced copy of the new album, Live at the Saxon Pub, and it was, indeed, a very good record, dark, brooding and confessional, just the sort of thing Americana fans would love. He thought fast. If I pay the £250, will you guarantee to pay it back as soon as you've sold 25 CDs? His flesh crept as he imagined Rosie's reaction were she to discover that he'd been paying fast and loose with their meagre savings. But for Christ's sake, don't tell my fiancé. Another hour later, and with the help of Ben's credit card, the roll-along suitcase had been refilled with the boxes of CDs. With alarm, Ben noticed that the only other things in the case were a toothbrush and a few pairs of socks and underpants. Corey clearly planned to do his entire UK tour in the clothes he stood up in. The conversation with the border officials had to be a very guarded affair. The lack of work permit was something that Ben hadn't considered, so he had to pretend that Corey was an old friend coming to visit him and not on any account make any reference to gigs. Ben had read an article not long before detailing how a Canadian singer had been deported when found to be working without permission. Border agency officials had marched her off stage in the middle of a performance in a pub in Swindon, driven her to Dover, and put her on a ferry to France. By the time they were cruising past fleet services on the M3 in the rain, Corey had calmed down a lot. He was grateful, he said, to Ben for meeting him, accommodating him, and bailing him out. How strange it was to drive on the left, and how quaintly English the rain was. Ben, in turn, described his excitement of putting on Corey's first UK show, although it was just possible, he warned, that not many people would be there. He also explained why Corey would be staying with his fiancée's parents. It was dark when they pulled into the driveway of Robert and Diana's detached house. The courtesy light flickered on, and no doubt the curtains twitched in the adjacent properties as the wheels of the heavy suitcase carved out grooves in the gravel. Both the prospective in-laws were out for Saturday dinner with friends, so Ben showed Corey to his room. I'm jet-lagged, declared Corey. See you tomorrow. He disappeared into the room, and Ben headed home, where Rosie was reading the weekly news property supplement, and didn't really want to be bothered with stories of beards and borders. Ben cracked open a can of Foster's from the fridge, grabbed a packet of kettle chips and lay down on the sofa in front of a recording of Later with Jules Holland. So far, he thought, apart from his credit card bill, so good. The plan for the Sunday was to take the guest for a tour of Winchester. Surely any foreign visitor was bound to be fascinated by the grave of Jane Austen in the cathedral, the statue of King Alfred in the Broadway, and the round table of the mythical King Arthur in the Great Hall of Winchester Castle. After that, 
Maybe a walk round the local beauty spot of Farley Mount would prove that English autumn leaves could put on a display to rival anything America could offer. Finally, late Sunday roast, a uniquely British proposition, could be eaten in the eccentric city pub, the Black Boy. But it didn't work out like that. When Ben arrived with Rosie at Chilbolton Avenue in the late morning, the in-laws were looking concerned. We didn't know whether to wake him, explained Diana. We haven't heard a sound. He's had a long journey and a lot of stress. He's probably jet-lagged. Let's just leave him. The afternoon was spent helping Robert to sweep up leaves and catching up with some episodes from a box set of Downton Abbey. And it was evening before Corey emerged, seeming having not even undressed. He accepted Ben's offer of tea, although he asked for honey in it. Good for my voice. Robert and Diana had already left to visit Diana's mother, who lived in Chandler's Ford, and had recently left hospital after an operation. They were intending to stay the night there, leaving the coast free for Ben to play host to this bizarre intruder. This left just Ben, Corey and Rosie, and a slightly awkward lack of conversation. Having explained the practicalities of the gig as far as he understood them, and asked all about Austin, receiving minimal information in response, Ben had run out of things to say. Corey showed no interest in the copy of the International Herald Tribune which Ben had purchased, because, bizarrely, it was on Corey's rider. Rosie, meanwhile, had absolutely nothing in common with a person she plainly saw as an intruder, and was merely, quite obviously, repelled by him. Corey abruptly stood up, opened the front door and disappeared. This was something Ben had been waiting for with apprehension. During the drug-fueled and volatile days of the chocks, Corey had been renowned for his habit of doing a runner. On one well-documented occasion, he'd taken exception to something Jesse said to him on stage at the Doug Fur Lounge in Portland, Oregon, and had hurled down his base, walked out of the main entrance, and simply kept on walking. He'd been found the following morning miles away, down among the homeless people beside the Willamette River, asleep on a park bench. But surely those days were long in the past. Within an hour, Corey was back, and he had a question. Hey, Ben, do you have any blow? Ben was speechless. Not only had he been certain that Corey's drug days were long over, he had absolutely no idea where, in this provincial town, he could lay his hands on any dope. The circles he moved in, where mild-mannered teachers went about their daily work, hardly featured even beer let alone any illegal substances, and any connection with drugs was unthinkable. Parts of Winchester, according to the weekly news, did have a drug culture, but it certainly didn't impinge on Ben or Rosie's lives, and the nature of his job meant that Ben wasn't inclined to offer Corey any help. Um, no, I'm afraid not. Can you get hold of any? I've tried, but no one knows where to go. Ben's blood ran cold. Please, God! Don't say Corey has been knocking on the well-heeled doors of Chilbolton Avenue, asking people if they could sell him marijuana. Where have you tried? I went down the road. I tried the kebab shop, the Albion, and the old jailhouse. Good grief! The old jailhouse with a Weatherspoon's drinking den. Maybe some of the clientele would have access to dope, but unlike perhaps the free and easy atmosphere of Austin, Texas, in Winchester you didn't just wander into pubs and randomly ask people for drugs especially if you look like a grisly backwoodsman. Corey, you're lucky to have got into the country at all, and now you're already risking being deported. This is a small town. Robert is a head teacher. 
and if word gets out he's playing host to a drug user, he'll probably be fired. Besides, I thought you'd given up drugs. Corey laughed. <laughs> I have, but a bit of blow isn't drugs. I need it to relax. I can't play without it. I get too nervous. I thought it would be easy to find some. Are you sure you don't have any friends you can help? Ben sighed, incredulous that he had got himself involved in something already getting out of control. Thank goodness Rosie was in the other room, uploading some house details onto Poole's website, ready for the next day. The only person Ben could think of was Jim, a friend who had been on the PGCE course with him in Southampton, but had dropped out. Ben knew that Jim and his wife liked the occasional joint. He'd seen them lighting up after a recent dinner party. He took out his iPhone and dialed Jim's number. It's not for me, of course, he found himself saying truthfully. Jim assured him he could help. Ben showed Corey where the bourbon was, another rider item, along with the honey, salsa and olives stored in a cardboard box in the hallway, and set off to meet Jim at his flat in the Portswood area of Southampton. Actually getting his hands on the stuff entailed making a lengthy trip with Jim in a dark, rickety and graffiti-coloured elevator to the top of a shabby tower block in Millbrook and paying a dodgy-looking dreadlock guy called Carl twenty quid for something that seemed like a large toffee wrapped in a cellophane. Carl was just as Ben had imagined a drug dealer would be like, unfriendly and not at all interested in the friendly banter that Ben attempted, trying to make it seem as if he knew what he was doing. On the drive back, feeling lucky to be alive, something approaching panic overtook Ben as he reflected on what he was doing. What to other people would have absolutely no significance, Jim thought Ben's worries were hilarious, was a massive deal for Ben. He was a teacher, and here he was procuring illegal drugs to be consumed in the house of someone who was a respected headmaster, and what was more, his future father-in-law. Oh, God. It was late when Ben got back to Chilbolton Avenue and furtively handed over the goods. Thanks, man, was Corey's response, as he ambled out onto the decking by the garden shed, filled a little hash pipe he had in his pocket and lit up. How the hell had he got that through customs? They must have been obsessed with the CDs. Rosie had gone home, so, begging Corey to leave no traces, Ben was about to leave him to it. Do you have this guy's phone number? asked Corey. What guy? The guy you got this stuff from. But, Corey, you'd never find the place. No worries. I can call him and he can deliver. Ben sighed and gave him Carl's mobile number. He was fed up with this. Tomorrow was a work day, and he'd pick up Corey late Monday afternoon to take him to the gig. Rosie was asleep when he got home, having curiously not left him the traditional note on the kitchen table, detailing various jobs he needed to do. This audiobook was a DC 10 tonight production.